Thanks for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. Our hope is that it helps you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Matthew 18, 15-20 Good morning, church. My name is Elijah Daly. I get to be one of the ministers here on staff. And I just want to tell you this has nothing to do with what we're talking about today. But I just want to tell you this. I actually love when we spring forward in the clock. And it's because this whole week, my kids will sleep till 730 instead of 630. And it's just great. So anyways, today we're going to look at Matthew's account, the gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom of God, Right. His whole thesis is the fact that we have been, the whole world really has been without the true king for a long time now, but he's here. The kingdom has come and it's a good thing. It is good news because this is a kingdom we want to be in. This is a kingdom where mercy and justice reign, where sin and death are deposed, where truth and grace are enjoyed. And it's ruled by a king who is quick to forgive. And it's for every single person. Like not one person on this earth is disqualified from being a part of this king so long as they just simply kneel at his feet, surrender their life to him. It is for the rich and the poor, the weak and the strong, the broken and the sinner, those who have experienced great loss and those who have experienced great gain. Jesus simply will not discriminate. He invites every single person into it because he has in mind for it to totally change us and to change his world. But if there is one thing we know about kingdoms, it is that there can be conflict. And that's pretty much true of any social gathering. So long as people are involved, there is room for conflict. And we all know that we have people in our life that kind of fall between two different sides of a spectrum of how they approach conflict. We have people in our life who are way too comfortable entering into it. And we have others who avoid it like the plague. And sometimes it really just depends on the topic at hand. Like I have a friend, I have a buddy of mine who says that he's not confrontational. But as soon as you tell him that he is, he gets very confrontational about it. I have another friend whose bark is pretty loud. But when it comes to his bite, it's more like a puppy, you know. But again... Just depends on what you're talking about, right? Like, is it gif or is it chif? Does pineapple belong on a pizza? What is better, Coke or Pepsi? Star Wars or Star Trek? The Office or the Big Bang Theory? 
If you said the Big Bang Theory, you are wrong, okay? <laughs> is cheerleading a sport? Is CrossFit a sport, right? Sometimes it just depends what we're talking about. It is easy to make conflict go up in flames, but it is not always easy to resolve it. And the truth is our, our passage, it challenges both those who are so willing to enter into conflict and those who avoid it. You see, at one level, it says you must enter into it. Like kingdom people enter into conflict. You cannot avoid it. But at another level, it says you have to be, do it in the right way. Like it's not about kicking the door down. It's not about being right. And so no matter where you fall on the confrontational spectrum, Jesus has a message for us. Reconciliation seeks to restore what sin seeks to, to destroy. This is what he wants us to hear in his word. And so today we're going to look at the goal of our reconciliation, the process of our reconciliation, and the hope of our reconciliation. The goal, the process, and the hope. So let's look at the goal of reconciliation. It picks up in Matthew 18, verse 15. It says this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So, pretty obvious goal here, right? The point is that you can gain your sibling. You can save the relationship. It won't be lost. Now, to be clear here, he isn't talking about your literal brother. He's talking about your spiritual brother or sister. A sibling created because of the person and work of King Jesus. Jesus is characterizing what life in his kingdom is like. It unites us as family. It allows us to be citizens of God's reign, but not just citizens, heirs. In fact, this is exactly what Romans 8 tells us, that one of the most fundamental qualities about being a part of the family of God is that the spirit of God actually comes into our life and it testifies that we are children of God. Listen to what it says. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Every person in this room who calls Jesus king, man, we are not just a fan of God. He is not a sports team. He is not even just a good idea. He is the author of life, the creator of all things. He is the God of the universe. He is our life. He is our priority. And he is also our father. And we make up his family. And therefore, every title that we have received in this world is secondary to the one that God has given to us. Our allegiance is to him and to him alone, his kingdom and its constituents. And our relationships with each other with the family of God, take precedent over those with non-believers, even if those non-believers are part of our blood family. Confrontational. But this is what Jesus says in Matthew 12, 48. He says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Do you see what he's saying? Whoever does his will gets to call the king of the universe their father. 
Whoever does his will, and we collectively do this together, we get to sit at the Father's feet, who is not just the God, a God of many, but the only God. And we call him Father. This is a family we want to be a part of. Because having access to a father like that, it's an unfathomable love. You may have experienced this before. I know I, I, it started to come to me the more I had kids. You know, my six-year-old Keller, one time, he woke me up in the middle of the night. And you know, when you, get, when, you, when you wake up in the middle of the night, you're just disoriented. You don't know what is going on. But I finally was able to start hearing what he was saying. And he's like, Dad, uh, Dawson said he hurt his arm. Dawson's my three-year-old. And I said, what? How? And he's like, I don't know. But he said he hurt his arm. And I said, okay, well, can he go back to sleep? <laughs> and he's like, I don't know. And I said, okay, well, can you go ask him if he can go back to sleep? <laughs> and so he went back. Great parenting, I know. He went back. He talked with Dawson. I don't know how the conversation went. But he came back and he said, um, dad? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, um, actually, Dawson didn't hurt his arm. He threw up everywhere. And I was like, what? <laughs> so obviously I got, I got up and I went back, you know, to his room and I started getting them all freshened up, getting new pajamas and new bed sheets and all that stuff, you know, got them, gotten consoled and back to sleep, back in bed. But that's the point. We have access to a father like that. That's what being a part of the family of God looks like. That's what a father should do for his child. Being a part of the family of God doesn't just mean we have a father who will come and clean up our mess. It means we have a brother and we have a sister who will go to that father on our behalf when we can't. And sometimes when we don't even want to. And this is the point. This is the goal of reconciliation is that this family, it stays intact that it isn't fractured by selfishness or ego or pain, and specifically that it isn't fractured by sin. That's specifically Jesus' point here because you, you really have to follow the train of thought Matthew has developed thus far. If you look in chapter 18, verse 6, it says, Jesus says that if you cause a child to sin, that you should have a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into the sea. In verse 8, it says, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, you should cut it off and throw it into the sea. What's Jesus trying to tell us? He hates the sea. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> He's saying that sin destroys. It corrupts. It is never individual. It is never just you. It is hurting everyone around you. And it needs to be eradicated immediately, totally rooted out. This is why, Jesus says, this is why you have to go to your brother or sister. You have to help them see their sin. This isn't to provoke them. It's to protect them. Protect the person involved. Protect those who, who are closest to them. So that the wounds aren't so deep. I mean, a scratch can heal pretty quickly, but a gash, that'll take time. This is the point. Jesus says, in our family, in this kingdom, in my church, we will do hard things. We will enter into hard conversations because by doing so, we will actually save our sibling. We will preserve our family. So what's the process? How do we go about entering into conflict in a way that is direct, but not jarring, gentle, but not permissive? 
Let's look at the process of reconciliation. The process. Now it started in verse 15 and it picks up again in verse 16. It says this, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now you can see here how the, the process of reconciliation progresses. It starts simply with the victim or the observer of the sin going to the perpetrator and trying to do this in isolation. This is a fundamental part. If there is any way to protect the dignity of the person involved, that should always be preferred. Like the whole world does not need to know what is going on, especially if it can be reconciled within the parties involved. This is a key part to this. And it says in verse 15, the way you do this is that you should go and tell them their fault. But in the English translation, it comes a little bit more direct than I think it is in the Greek. You see, what the word is actually saying there is not that you just go and you say, you're a disgusting sinner. That's not what it's saying. He's saying you go and you show them. You show them their sin. You show them how it has wounded and how it will continue to wound and spread. You show them the harm that it has caused. And in helping them see the harm, it may help them lead them back into healing. But... It says there's one or two others can actually come in and they can actually help you see if you are making this more of a big deal than it should be. Like if you are making a, a mountain out of a molehill and they can help you gain clarity into this, this situation and whether it needs to be addressed in this certain way. But if they agree with you, then now you have one or two other siblings in Christ that can come along with you to help you try and save this perpetrator, the person who is sinning and ultimately causing destruction and death. And if the perpetrator of sin won't even listen to the two to three individuals who have agreed that this is destructive, then it's brought to the church. Now, this is a really interesting thing that Jesus does here. Because the truth is, the church as a spiritual entity doesn't actually exist yet. Like, there are only two times in the entire four Gospels where the word church is used in this way. And it's in Matthew 16, which is what Mark preached on last week, and right here. You see, Jesus is actually anticipating the life of the church. He's speaking with his apostles. He's actually giving them instruction on how they're going to manage conflict because he's going to be leaving, but the church is going to come and it's going to grow and there's going to be a way that you ultimately solve and manage the conflict when it arises because when people are involved, it will. And he says, the church is key. Now, when it says church, don't forget, it's not talking about a building. It's talking about the people the people who call Jesus king, the people who are a part of his family, the body of believers, especially the body of believers that you yourself have committed yourself to. It's saying the last active effort to save the sibling and guard the family is actually to bring the whole family into it. It's an intervention. And here, even here, the purpose is not to point. It is to kneel. It is to pray it is to plead with this sibling that what they're doing is destructive, that they have created a habit of death that will only lead to death. 
that whatever think that whatever they think they will gain, it will certainly end up in loss. There is no life to be found here. And if they refuse to listen to this body of believers, those people that they have found unity in Christ with, those people that they have prayed with and served with and given with and sacrificed with, then, it says, they must be treated as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, your translation may say pagan instead of Gentile, but the point is, it's really more accurately Gentile because the point is that this is somebody who is outside of the covenant community outside of, of the Jewish people who had received the laws and, the, and the, the covenants. And so what does this mean? Like, is Jesus saying that if we do all of our due diligence, we should treat them like they are scum? Like they are the other? Like they don't belong here and they never have? Absolutely not. If Jesus has taught us anything over the course of this gospel, it's that the Gentile and the tax collector are the very people who need his heart the most. If you look throughout the gospel, you will see this over and over again. These were the outcasts. These are people who were outside of the covenant community. But over and over again, Jesus' heart and his ministry, he goes to them. In chapter 8, he healed lepers and a centurion's daughter. In chapter 9, he calls Matthew, the tax collector, out of his booth to come be his disciple. And what does Matthew end up doing? Writing this gospel. He heals men who are blind and a Canaanite daughter who has been possessed by a demon. Man, he is constantly working to draw all men and women to himself because that's what God is in the business of doing. He's in the business of bringing life where people were bound to death. He's in the business of creating a kingdom of misfits that all find an identity, not in what they used to be, but in, their, but in who they are in Christ, in King Jesus. And the point Jesus is making here is not that we must treat those who refuse to repent with scorn or contempt, but as those who have forgotten the love of their Savior. They actually have to be converted all over again. They have to be seen as those who are now outside of the kingdom of God because they have built their own. They can no longer benefit from the family in the same ways. They actually do have to be dismissed from the body so they don't further inflict it. That's how serious sin is. It's a cancer. It has to be cut out before it destroys the rest of the body. And this is why Jesus says in verse 18 in regards to the church, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He's saying the kingdom the church, the family of God has been given the authority to make these decisions. Jesus says when it comes to church discipline and the reconciliation of the family, that the church is the actual instrument by which this binding and loosing can be done, that God will actually bless this process and it will have eternal impact. Now, if you're like me, you may be like, really? The church? It has the authority to tell me whether I'm in or out? How perfect must I be? We all sin, don't we? How bad does my sin must how bad may my sin be until I'm disqualified? How can anyone deserve to be here? This doesn't seem fair. And then the kingdom, man, it feels exclusive and it feels judgmental and it simply feels impossible. All of a sudden you, you don't really know if you belong here at all. Let's look at the hope of reconciliation. 
how the hope of reconciliation addresses these types of questions. Listen to what it says in verse 19. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now the first reason for hope of reconciliation is actually that the family of God is directly involved. Now you may be asking, like, what if the church abuses this? Well, that's a whole nother sermon and it's coming. We're gonna actually talk about that this summer. But let us assume for the moment that just because one church abuses its authority and that not all churches do that. Let's also assume for the moment that you have chosen the church that you have because you actually trust it to handle the word of God, to provide wisdom and guidance for a life dedicated to following him. The reason the church can be successful at reconciliation is because it has the very presence of God working in it. People who house him, who are animated by his goodness. And you know what Jesus says to his church regarding this process with anyone who has sin? Don't give up on them. I hope that you have seen that that is what this entire process is characterized by. Don't give up. If the person has sins, you go to them individually and you, and you don't give up. They don't listen, you go with two or three more. If they don't listen, don't give up. You go with the church, and if they don't listen, don't give up. Don't let sin have them. Don't let the enemy win. Don't let their life become destroyed because of a pleasure that has, be, has become more beautiful than, than, than God truly is, than the life that he's offering. In fact, that's the whole point of removing them from the body. It's for them. It's not out of spite. It's out of love. We want them back. We want the real them the image of God that has been created and molded in them, the person God wants them to be. And perhaps without this community, they might feel the sting, the longing for that love and the relationship that only God can provide. And being without this community, there will be that one moment. That moment will come when they will feel the full weight of that loneliness, of guilt, shame and sadness. How could that save them? Because it could be in that one moment that they remember this is exactly what Jesus did for them. That God came in our rebellion at when we were sinners and he, he confronted us. That although we deserve to be made outsiders of the kingdom of God, instead, Jesus became the outsider instead. It was Jesus who was crucified outside of the covenant city. It was Jesus who was betrayed by his friends and rejected by his people. It was Jesus who felt the full weight of our sin. It was Jesus who felt the full weight of our shame and our guilt and our loneliness and our sadness. It was him. And if they realized that for one moment, they never have to feel that again because King Jesus has taken it upon himself once and once and for all, they may realize that the kingdom they have built is a house of cards compared to the rule he is inviting them to. 
the beauty of the table he's inviting them to sit at. They might lay down their weapons. They might turn around. They may run to our father and be embraced, not just by him, but by the entire family of God. Because it says that all of heaven rejoices when one sinner returns, when he sits down at the table and he dines with the king. Because the truth is, the church isn't made up of perfect people. We do all have sin. And Matt Chandler, I think, says it the best, the, 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 the difference, really, between a believer and a non-believer in Jesus is not that one has sin and the other doesn't. We all have sin. The difference is that when a believer sins, he runs to God, not from him. That's what God is inviting us to, to see that the possibility of reconciliation is possible to have hope for it. I hope that you see it. Because there tends to be two types of people when you have this conversation. One is, well, how many times must we forgive them? How many times do they get to come back over and over if they keep doing it, right? And on the other side, you have people who are like, can I still be forgiven? Like, is my seat still available? And Jesus answers you in the same way he answers Peter. How many times must the church forgive and allow a sinner to come back in Become a saint and sit at their seat every single time. Because this kingdom is one of forgiveness and your seat's available. And I can think of no one who really demonstrates this as well as Corrie Ten Boom. You may have heard her story before, uh, but Corrie was a woman who grew up in Holland. She grew up in a Christian family and it was during Nazi Germany and her family had decided that against the warnings, they were going to hide Jews in their home and save them from the brutality of the Nazis. And eventually they were found out. And Corey and her family, her sister, were taken to a concentration camp. And they lived under these terrible conditions of physical and emotional abuse. And it was clear throughout it that they were never going to give up their faith in God. They kept it throughout the whole thing. And if you hear their story, man, it's just miraculous event after event that God does shaping them, guarding them, moving them, using them. And Corey, by the grace of God, survived the experience. And she was led to share her story and what her family did and what her family went through and their commitment to God throughout the whole process. And she speaks about a time in particular that she'll never forget. She was speaking at different churches. And after she was done speaking at one event, a man came walking toward her and she immediately recognized his face. It was the SS officer in her concentration camp, the one who stood at the shower door. And she said, in that moment, all of those memories, all of those feelings came flooding back into her heart. The mocking men, the heaps of clothing, the pain on her sister's face. And he came up to her and he said, thank you so much for that message. To think that as you say, even I can be forgiven. And he went out to shake her hand and she said she froze. She wanted to, but she just had too much vengeance and anger in her heart. And she prayed, Lord, forgive me and help me forgive him. 
but she could not move. She tried to muster a smile. She couldn't. She prayed again, Lord, forgive me and help me forgive him. But she couldn't move. Finally, she prayed, Jesus, forgive me. Give me your forgiveness. And she took hold of his hand. She said, in that moment, something so amazing happened from her shoulder to her hand. Something sprang into existence that overcame her. It was a love that for this stranger that she could not describe. And she says, I discovered in that moment that it is not our forgiveness anymore that it is our goodness that the world's healing hinges on, but his. She said, when he tells us to love our enemies, he gives along with the command, the love itself. They will be sitting at the table of eternity with their king feasting with the Father because reconciliation is possible because this is a kingdom of forgiveness, of healing, and of life. And the kingdom will never give up fighting for God's world. The church will never give up setting the forks and the knives and the placemats for your seat at the table. You are totally forgiven. Will you return? Will you take your seat? Will you give God yourself and abandon everything else? Will you allow the hope of reconciliation to become the reality of reconciliation? We pray that you will. And we pray that you continue to enter into hard conversations to save those who have wandered away or those who don't even realize that their seat is available. And if you fit any of those categories today, man, we would love to pray with you. We have ministers who will be at the back tables that would have a conversation with you, helping you experience the true love and reconciliation that only God can give because of his love and a forgiveness that is far superior than our own. He is good. So let's stand and praise him this morning as we respond. Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christ Church, visit us online at cco.church.